One of the most significant events in human history is happening right now. Every 2,000 years, God has sent a prophet to reveal a new covenant between humanity and the Creator. The next prophet has recently been discovered, and the Third Testament of the Bible is currently being crafted. The Supplicant Movement is proud to host this series of podcasts by the living prophet himself. These podcasts are designed to complement the Last Testament, not replace it. Any discrepancies between the podcast and the Last Testament should be deferred to the written holy text. Hi, this is your prophet. Welcome to my series of podcasts as I explore the Last Testament and how it can transform your life to build a stronger relationship with your creator, your family, your friends, and your community. I want to thank you for spending a few minutes with me and giving me an opportunity to express to you the message that God has commissioned me to convey to you. I know that for a lot of you, this is all new stuff. If this is the first podcast that you're listening to from me, I'd encourage you to actually start with our very first podcast, which gives a good overview of the Last Testament and the Final Covenant. You can find that first podcast at our website at godhasevolved.com. You can also drop me a line at our website and say hi. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, so this is the podcast that's going to make some of my Christian friends a little uncomfortable. This will probably be the most controversial podcast I ever do. This is the podcast that many Christians will point to when they want to call me a false prophet. Unfortunately, there's nothing I can do about that. Both Moses and more so Christ had to deal with the wrath of the established organized religions and the legacy belief systems that were fundamentally threatened by God's covenants. Of course, we all know what happened to Christ when he dared to reveal that the old belief system was no longer valid. He was murdered by the church. Remember, Christ was a rebel, and his message was a radical shift from the traditions of the church and their current interpretations of the Bible. What Christ was talking about wasn't just a slight adjustment to the current belief system. It was a drastic and sharp right turn. Many of the concepts he was discussing completely flew in the face of the established religious norms. This so shocked and horrified the established religious leaders that they conspired with the government to have him killed. Again, I'm not trying to place myself as an equal to Christ. I'm not equal. I'm just a prophet. Christ was a prophet and so much more. I keep pointing this out because every time it even slightly appears that I'm trying to compare myself to Christ, I get a ton of angry letters from Christians. But Christ and I do share one thing in common. The message that we've been charged with to convey is a radical message that threatens the current dominant established religion. And some people are going to be angry, very, very angry. And I can understand that. A person's religious beliefs are the core factor to their very identity. By pointing out flaws or misconceptions in their religious belief, you're actually attacking who they are as a person. It's no wonder wars have been started over this stuff. So if you're a Christian, Try your best to keep this in mind as we make our way through this controversial podcast today. Remember, it's not my job to convince you that what I'm saying is true. That's God's job. If He wants you to embrace the final covenant, then He will open your heart to this message. Your job is simple. Just hear me out. And when this is over, close your eyes and ask God 
Is this true? Is what he's saying true? God will let you know the answer. So here we go. I'm going to dispel several misinterpretations in the New Testament, and I'm going to toss out an entire section of the Bible. This is a big day for you because I'm going to answer many of the questions that have plagued Christians about the New Testament since its inception. Now again, this podcast is going to assume that you've already listened to at least the first podcast of this series, which gives a brief overview of the Final Covenant. If you haven't listened to that yet, you really should stop and download it first. Some of what I'm going to talk about won't make any sense to you if you don't at least have a cursory knowledge of the information in that podcast. Okay, let's start with the easy one, the book of Revelations. I love the book of Revelations. It's a fantastic piece of writing, rich in imagery and metaphor. It's both frightening and beautiful at the same time. It's one of the most studied, most controversial, and most debated books in the entire Bible. And unfortunately, it's completely wrong. It's not a holy text. This is not an account of the end of the world. There will be no war between heaven and hell. How do I know this? Well, besides being God's prophet, I know this because hell no longer exists. And Lucifer is in heaven, sitting at the left-hand side of God. So we won't be seeing any horsemen or antichrists or anything of that nature, I'm afraid. But we'll see something altogether better. God has revealed humanity's endgame through the final covenant, and it's awesome. Humanity doesn't end with wars and plagues, but with love and joy. The earth will be filled with Christ-like individuals who are permanently bonded with their Creator. Each person will live solely to uplift the others, and all the hatreds and fears and selfish acts of our past will be distant memories. In fact, the earth will appear so much like heaven that God will eventually fold earth back into heaven, and all of humanity will be one with the Father. And since your soul is eternal, you're going to actually witness that event. Now, how cool is that? So you can see why the book of Revelations isn't a holy text. Revelations was the last book to be canonized, and many great biblical scholars throughout history have pointed out that it shouldn't be in the Bible. Martin Luther, just to name one. It's actually a little sad to see the old book go. We have some great literature, art, and films made about Revelations, some pretty scary stuff, but... Alas, God's got a better plan for humanity than death and destruction. So if the book of Revelations isn't valid, what about the return of Christ? He's supposed to come back like a thief in the night, right? Well, yes and no. Almost all of the interpretations concerning the return of Christ are skewed by the reflection of Revelations. But once you strip away Revelations, you're forced to deal with several passages about it the second coming, that really form a convoluted mess. Half of the Bible seems to back up the events of the book of Revelations. Other times it seems that Christ would return during the same generation he was alive. So here's the deal. If you want to tackle the New Testament's predictions of the end of the world, and if you want to do so using the information about God's plan for humanity that I've revealed, you'll need to take into account two factors. The first is that the New Testament was written by average human beings decades after the events depicted occurred. That's why many of the details of the events aren't 100% accurate when you read about them from different biblical authors. 
The Bible is not the literal word of God. It's the almost literal word of God. Anyone who studied the Bible will see that it can't be literal. Otherwise, God must be a little schizophrenic because there are a lot of contradictions and different versions of the same event. You're supposed to take away the main message. So, with this in mind, the second factor is this. When Christ was alive, there were some major events still left to come for humanity. Christ still had to die and be resurrected in order to establish his covenant. Lucifer had to reconcile with God, which would lead to the destruction of hell, and I had to arrive to announce the final covenant. And earth still has to fold into heaven. So when you read the apocalyptic accounts, the human authors obviously didn't know about most of these events when Christ was alive. So when Christ begins describing these events, the biblical authors believe that he's describing one single event in the future rather than a series of events. Even I get confused when I read them because they still jump all over the map. When he says that many of the disciples will be alive when he returns, he's obviously referring to his resurrection. When he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to that folding in of heaven I described earlier. I'd love it if some biblical scholar would take some time to write a book that goes over all the statements Christ made and apply it to the final covenant information. It'd be a fascinating read, but I'm no biblical scholar. I'm a prophet, and my job is to tell you what happened after the biblical events. All right, so now that I've told you that the book of Revelations is not a holy text, that the New Testament can't be taken literally, and Christ won't be coming back in some terrible way. So what else can I set straight for you? I know, let's talk about the saints and the Virgin Mary. So I think God makes it pretty clear that there's only one God and he's it. In fact, he makes it obvious that he only wants you to acknowledge him and him alone. So what's the deal with saints and the Virgin Mary? Now. Many Catholics will say that they don't worship the saints or Mary as they do God. And that's true. But Catholics do make idols of these individuals and pray to them. They wear jewelry depicting their images and place statues of them in their homes. There are patron saints of winemaking, of lovers, of war, among other things. Of course, the pagans had Bacchus, the god of wine, Venus, the god of love, and Mars, the god of war. I'm having a hard time trying to get my head around the difference, aren't you? I'm not trying to be condescending, but anyone who takes even a cursory reading of the Bible can see that praying to a saint or to the Virgin Mary is a direct violation of God's number one commandment. Now, I know the Catholics will say that they don't pray to the saint as if the saint could directly help them, but rather they're really attempting to enlist the support of the saint to pray with them, to thus strengthen their prayer. This is still just foolish. You're God's child. God craves your love and wants communication with you directly. You gain strength in your prayer by just praying to him. He's listening intently to everything you say, and if he thinks it's best, he's going to grant your prayers. There's no need to add some long dead soul you've never met into your prayers. You're already his top priority. It's like you're at a birthday party surrounded by all your friends and relatives who are there to celebrate your special day with you, and you're about to give a speech to thank them for coming. You don't need to call up a movie star and try to have them show up during the speech. 
because you think it's going to somehow get your friends and family to pay a little extra attention to you and what you have to say. Your friends and family love and respect you. They're going to want to hear what you have to say at your birthday party already. The movie star doesn't add anything. So please, God wants you to put away your false idols and start communicating directly with him. So, with the saints and the Virgin Mary behind us, let's tackle the most sensitive subject of all, the Holy Trinity. Now, if you're a Christian and I haven't made you angry thus far, this one might be the deal breaker for you. The Holy Trinity is one of the core foundations of modern Christianity. And if you paid attention to what I just said about the saints, you probably know where I'm going to head here. But before I do, I should make a quick side note about how the New Testament has been interpreted throughout the ages. Many of the individuals who have tried to interpret the passages of the Bible in order to create doctrine were, for the most part, good men. In fact, they had a huge task on their hands, and it's admirable that they were even able to make heads or tails on most of it. The New Testament wasn't written as a scientific or historical account of events. It was meant to inform and inspire the readers about the life of Christ and his covenant that he was invoking. That's why there are so many contradictions and varying accounts of the same events. The author's intent wasn't to be scientifically accurate. They wanted to convey a message. Many times they use flowery language and poetic passages in an attempt to inspire the reader. Jesus is referred to in many poetic terms like shepherd, the son of man, the son of God, the light, you know, etc. So this was no easy task to wade through texts written by different authors who saw the events of Jesus through their own biased perspective. With each author trying to persuade, enlighten, and inspire the readers with stories, parables, personal narratives, and poetry, it's a daunting task to try to figure out the common thread among all these writings in order to create a cohesive doctrine. And for the most part, they got it right. Remember, they didn't have the benefit of the gift of prophecy, so they had to discern their interpretations the old-fashioned way through prayer, debate, and meditation. Well, the good news is that a prophet has finally arrived that can definitively answer these questions that have been part of the Christian experience for over 2,000 years. So my point is that I'm about to turn a few of the major Christian principles on its head. I want you to know that you shouldn't feel disappointed that you believe these doctrines that were laid out for you when you became a Christian. They were, after all, humanity's best attempt to figure out God's will through an imperfect textbook. That being said, let's tackle the Holy Trinity. If you're a new Christian, you may have heard of the Holy Trinity, but you may not really understand it. According to the current Christian tradition, God is a single entity that manifests himself in three distinct and separate forms, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All three forms are God, but each form has a specific purpose. A loose example is a woman who is a sister, a mother, and a daughter. She is still the same woman, but based on the role that's being invoked and her relationship to you, she can be one or more of these. Now, this is a pretty oversimplified analogy that biblical scholars would argue against, but you get the basic idea. The concept that God is a trinity started with one of the first debates about how the Bible was to be officially interpreted. In particular was the issue of whether Christ was a divinely inspired man or a manifestation of God. The church was divided over this debate and split it apart for many years. 
Of course, the interpretation that Christ was a manifestation of God won out, and the first part of the Holy Trinity was established. Later, the early church would add the Holy Ghost as a manifestation of God and create the Trinity. Remember, the concept of the Holy Trinity was established centuries after Christ's death. This interpretation was made generations after the last disciple had died, so there were no first-hand witnesses to help with the decisions about how to interpret the flawed writings that the early church leaders had in their possession. They did the best they could. Well, I can tell you now that they had it pretty much right. Christ was a manifestation of God, but they missed the bigger picture. We are all manifestations of God. God is not separate from you. He is you. You are made of 100% God. In fact, there is nothing in you that is not God. All of creation was taken from God by God. Everything is interconnected. So Christ can't be more God than anything else. Christ is a manifestation of God. You are a manifestation of God. That tree outside your window is a manifestation of God. Heck, even the electronic device you're using to listen to this podcast is a manifestation of God. So if Christ wasn't more God than you, what was he? Well, Christ was simply an example. He was a model for us to follow. He is the destination for all humanity. God placed Christ on the earth, so we had an example to follow. You see, everyone will eventually become Christ-like. Some will achieve that state on earth, but most will have to sort it out in purgatory, at least for now. Remember, there's a time coming in human history when the earth will be filled with Christ-like individuals. Eventually, no one will need to go to purgatory. We will all become perfect on earth. So, when you worship Christ like God, you miss the point. Christ doesn't want you praying to Him. He wants you to learn from Him and follow His example. He wants you to become like Him. So, since Christ isn't God in the sense that modern Christianity has misinterpreted, there is no Holy Trinity. There's only one God. When you pray, pray to God. When you walk, walk with God. When you speak, speak to God. When we say that Christ sits on the right-hand side of God, what we really mean is that humanity sits on the right-hand side of God. Christ is the perfect human, and only perfect humans can enter heaven and be with the Father. But don't worry, you're going to be perfect someday. One day, you'll be sitting at the right-hand side of God and will experience a level of joy and fulfillment you can't even comprehend now. When Christ says that the only way to the Father is through me, he means that you can only get there through his example. When you finally reach your state of perfection like Christ, you will be one with the Father. Still don't believe me? Reread the New Testament again, armed with this information I've just given you. You'll suddenly see passages that seem so vague and mysterious suddenly seem blatantly obvious now that you've got the key to all those passages. One final note about the death and resurrection of Christ. Because Christ isn't a manifestation of God in the traditional Christian sense, doesn't make his sacrifice any less significant. Christ basically had three tasks to perform while he was on earth. The first was as a prophet. He was here to announce his covenant between humanity and God. The second job was to provide a physical example of what a perfect human being means. And his third job 
maybe his most important task, was to usher in his covenant with his death and resurrection. It was a sacrifice that bore the sins of man. It's that important event that biblical scholars fortunately got 100% correct. Okay, so I promised in the first podcast that I'd go over the verses that specifically refer to me and my arrival in the book of John, where Jesus announces that an anonymous prophet called the Comforter will come and give humanity the last bit of knowledge directly from God. So let's take a quick look at those passages. The first reference to my arrival is in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. And here's what Christ said. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may remain with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him, or know him, or recognize him. But you will know and recognize him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, many biblical scholars have said in the past that this passage is Christ telling his disciples that when he's gone, Christ will send down the Holy Ghost to guide them. They get that from the spirit of truth phrase, and it throws them off. But now we have some hindsight with the new information about my existence as the prophet, don't we? So the passage makes a little more sense. If you wait through the poetic language, Christ is basically saying, He's going to send another prophet who will speak the truth, but the world will reject him because he's anonymous. However, you as a believer in God will accept him because you will recognize that he's telling the truth. Listen to it again. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may remain with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him or recognize him. But you know and recognize him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Okay, so let's look at the next reference to yours truly. Check out John 14, verse 26. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will cause you to recall everything I have told you. So here's Christ saying again that I will arrive, and my job is to finish relaying the knowledge that God wants to impart to humanity. My job is to also reiterate Christ's teachings and and make humanity remember his example. Listen to it again. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will cause you to recall everything I have told you. So again, many biblical scholars will have said that this passage refers to the Holy Ghost and and not an actual person. They get confused by the word spirit again, I'm afraid, but according to traditional Christian doctrine, the Holy Ghost is eternal and has always been and will always be. The Holy Ghost is in everyone all the time. So how can they explain John chapter 16, verse 7? In it, Christ says, However, I'm telling you nothing but the truth when I say it is good for you that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I do go away, I will send him to you. How can Christ send something that has always existed and is always inside you after he departs? If the Comforter is the Holy Ghost, then it wouldn't matter if Christ went away or not, since the Holy Ghost is already here. No. This passage clearly says that the Comforter is not there currently when Christ is saying this, 
but will arrive only after Christ departs. Therefore, the Comforter isn't the Holy Ghost and is certainly not Christ. So, therefore, the Comforter is something else entirely. Listen to it again. However, I'm telling you nothing but the truth when I say, it is good for you that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I do go away, I will send him to you. And finally, in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, Christ tells the disciples what the Comforter's job is. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you are not able to grasp them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak his own message, but he will tell you whatever he hears from the Father. And he will announce and declare to you the things that are to come. He will honor and glorify me, because he will draw upon what is mine, and will reveal it to you. So again, Christ reiterates that, I will finish conveying the last bit of knowledge that God has for humanity, and that knowledge will be based on the teachings of Christ. He basically says that there is more information that needs to be revealed, but humanity wasn't ready to comprehend it yet. It's the Comforter's job, then, to reveal that information when humanity is ready to hear it. I guess God has decided the time is now. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here is Christianity's statement that there is only one true path to God. Christianity has set up a very specific set of rules that have to be followed in order to achieve salvation. They're really big on these rules, and they like to tell everyone how, if they don't follow the rules, that they're going to be punished. It's extremely narcissistic and exclusionary, and throughout history, these arbitrary rules have been used to abuse, alienate, torture, and even kill those that refuse to follow them. Well, I'm here to tell you that they're dead wrong. God doesn't really care how you become a better person. He just wants you to become a better person. He's provided a model to follow through Christ and his teachings, and I'm here to fill in the gaps, but if you decide to ignore what I'm saying or what Christ has taught, you can still get to God. Remember, everyone will enter heaven eventually. It doesn't matter what you believe on earth. Of course, if you listen to Christ's example and you follow the last testament, you'll be better equipped for your journey towards God. So why has the Christian church used this tactic of exclusivity to God? Well, in a word, fear. I'm not a salesman, but I have some friends who are professional salesmen, and they always tell me stories about the great negotiations they've had with customers that battle of will between the salesman and the customer. And do you know what one of the most effective sales techniques there is? It's selling alleviation from fear. Think about it. Fear sells. If you're afraid that something's going to happen, anything from death of a spouse, an automobile accident, or unsightly dandruff, you're willing to purchase something to squash that fear. You may purchase life insurance, a safer car, or anti-dandruff shampoo. You're only buying these things because you're afraid of the consequences if you don't purchase them. Salesmen use this tactic all the time to get you to buy their product. Turn on the television and watch some of the commercials. About half of them are about products that will minimize consequences to dramatic and not-so-dramatic negative events. So unfortunately, organized religions, not just Christianity, have picked up on this tactic to sell their religion. Just about every organized religion has an exclusivity clause that basically says our way is the only true way to God. 
It'd be funny if it hadn't caused so much damage to humanity since its inception. I mean, to, to say that God will condemn eternal punishment to a person who has led an exemplary life of compassion, goodwill, and charity. That that person will burn in hell for all eternity simply because they didn't follow a set of rules that the church made up. Isn't that evil in and of itself? The Christian church will tell people that God loves them more than anyone on earth ever will. This means that God loves you more than your parents, your siblings, and even your spouse. And they're absolutely correct. The love you have and receive from your family is only a small fraction of the love that God has for you. But would you condemn your children to an eternity in hell simply because they didn't follow some arbitrary rule? Listen, God loves your children infinitely more than you do. Why would he condemn them to a fate you never would? It's crazy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to bash the Christian church here. They're a great and charitable organization. But they have been run by human beings. And human beings, as we all know, are fundamentally flawed. In their desperation to get people into heaven, they, they lost the plot a little. It's okay. I'm here to get them back on track. But think about it. Do you believe that God wants humanity to turn towards him because they're afraid that if they don't, there are going to be dire consequences? With everything you know about God as a Christian, do you really think he's looking for humanity to love him based on fear? Wouldn't he want you to turn towards him because you genuinely want to be with him? Fear should have nothing to do with it. Listen, I've thrown a bunch of stuff at you today, and if you're like some Christians, you might be a little upset with me and questioning whether or not all this is valid or not. But like I said before, it's not my job to convince you whether or not I'm telling you the truth. That's God's job. If you made it this far, then you've already demonstrated that you have an open mind about what I'm saying. That's great. But now my job is done, and the rest of the work has to be handed over to you and God. Now, I know I've asked a lot of you in this podcast, but can I ask you for one last thing? Can I ask you to spend a few minutes quietly with God when this podcast is over? Please don't turn off your iPod or computer or whatever you're listening to me on and run off to your next task. Instead, let the podcast end and just close your eyes for a minute and sit with God. And just whisper to him, whisper, is this true? Is what he's saying true? And sit there quietly and listen and wait. Is this true? Is what he's saying true? And if you shut off all the distractions and ask this question honestly, you'll start to hear the answer directly from God. You'll suddenly start to feel the answer enter your soul. And God will tell you whether or not I am his prophet. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your family and friends. Also, be sure to vote for us on podcast sites, blogs, and forums you may visit. If you'd like more information about the Last Testament, the Prophet, or the Supplicant Movement, you can visit us on the web at godhasevolved.com. There you can join our community, enter debates, 
find other podcasts, and share ideas with other people interested in the Last Testament. Finally, we're eager to get the monumental news of the Last Testament out to the general public. Any help you can provide, either financial or otherwise, will really help. Without financial support, the ability to get this message out is extremely hindered. God bless, and have a great week.